Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, Romans chapter 14 is where we're at. Romans chapter 14, page 804 in the church Bibles. It's, it's good to see everyone here this morning, and I trust you had a good week. And the morning has begun just as good. It's a little lengthy reading, but it's, it's one of those sections where there's one thought, and if you don't get that whole thought, then it, it could be confusing. We're going to basically this morning kind of fly 30, 40,000 feet over the text and and then next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll we'll do more verse by verse. But I think I think you'll understand why as we as we move along. So, and it's such an important chapter. <laughs> you could say that about every chapter in the book. But I I just think this one is just so timely and in a whole bunch of different ways. Okay. This is the word of God. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat, him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is, is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one, more, one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord, Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. 
Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the, destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes something, someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even, as, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Amen. Thank you for your patience through that. Let's, let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, may, may your love flourish in us now as your word is read and preached and listened to in order that we will not only love you and love others and love each other, much better, but well. A love that is sincere and intelligent and meaningful and not just simply sentimental and, and fleeting. And let your word please produce in us new life, your life, and things yet unknown that that is careful and, and admirable, making Jesus Christ attractive to everyone. And please help all of us to care deeply about what we're going to be learning. And don't let us ever stop being surprised by the Bible. And so we pray these things to the praise of your glory for our good, and therefore, Father, for the good of others. Amen. We have three points, and we're just going to get right to it. They're pretty simple. Big picture, major point, and gospel truth. And the gospel truth will be more like application. So let's just start with the big picture. And the big picture is all this instruction that we're given here that begins in verse 1 of chapter 14. is taking us to a place that is crystal clear. Okay, The place where we're being taken, crystal clear, and it's impossible to accomplish without the help of the Holy Spirit. And here's where we're going. Chapter 15, verse 5, you see it there? May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give us a spirit of unity, right? The same attitude of mind towards each other and other translations that, that Christ Jesus had. So it's past tense here. 
so that with one mind and one voice we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there it is again in verse 7 or 6. Accept, or 7, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. Again, past tense in order to bring praise to God. And, and what you need to know is at the center of everything that Paul is saying, the center can be held because of Jesus Christ. So just look at your Bible there, verse, verse 5. Have the same mind towards each other as Christ had for you. So immediately Paul takes our minds right to the gospel, and therefore he takes us to the cross because the ground is always equal at the foot of the cross. The cross is wonderfully united. You know, the redemptive work of Jesus, the self-giving, self-sacrificing work of Jesus, the equalizing work of Jesus. He emptied himself. So this is the mind that we should have. He empties himself and he put himself on a cross volitionally by his own will to save us from sin, to save us from God's right wrath, and to save us from a forever judgment. So Jesus literally did everything possible to make us acceptable to God. And then Paul says at the end of his instruction there, have that saving mindset towards not only your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but if you look at verse 5, chapter 15, verse 2, indeed, even your neighbor. So this is like unbelievers. So that God may be glorified by us as one. So one mind, one voice, bringing praise to God. And then he doubles down again in verse 7. Accept one another in order to bring praise to God. Accept one another as what? Just as Christ accepted you. And do you see that word accept in verse 7? It's actually, isn't it? It's the first word in chapter 14, verse 1. Do you see it there? And so that means it's critical to the whole passage. It's like it's bookends. And so the word there is proselomalanto. And it means simply to draw in. To be for other people, your neighbors and your brothers and sisters in Christ, to be for them in such a way that you draw them in. So you're going to have to open up your circle wider. You open up your arms and you welcome someone in. That's literally what it means. So here, my mic just went off. Sorry, I did it. It did. It's green here. Is that better? Go ahead. Good? Is that better? Well, thank you. Sorry. So here, it's, it literally means you adjust your life. You make changes. And in order to have a relationship with someone, in this context, who's, who's weak, whose conscience is different than yours, who, who, and in this context, again, culturally, they're different. And maybe in some, like, secondary beliefs, behaviors, Lines of thinking, they're different, are very different than you. And so we need to realize what this means. It means that this says what Jesus Christ did, right? He hindered the way he lived. He adjusted his life, not his holiness, but his life. He adjusted it in all kinds of ways in order to have a deeper relationship with people in whom, and we have to say this, in whom he was infinitely different than talking second person of the trinity and then we're talking us so he is infinitely different than us 
but he opened his arms to welcome us in. So if verse 7 is to be obeyed, except one another, weak, strong, neighbor, unbeliever, in order to bring praise to God, then that means a lot of things. But what it means is you have to be really careful about how you speak to people. And you have to be really careful about what you do in front of people. And you're going to have to make adjustments. You you empty yourself, literally. And so there are contexts where then we, we must refrain from things that ordinarily you would like to do and ordinarily you would like to say. So you're not trying to mislead people. You're not trying to confuse people. But you're trying to deepen the relationship with, with that person who's, in this context, pretty different than you. Pretty different culturally. Pretty different in personal issues. And maybe in some of those secondary areas, different than you in the way you believe about them. And so if you had to make it in a line, in essence, you need to do what love requires. That's been the whole bent since Paul started pinning chapter 12. Do what love requires. All right, so let's just put some, some meat on this. This, this week, I, I wrote to my wife. I said it and I wrote it. I said... I look at you and, and sometimes I say, who are you? And I wrote that because what I was trying to say as best as I could, that there's so much more to her than I right now know of her that I want to know about even after all these years. Now, let's just put some more teeth to that because she, like every person, she is made in the image of God. Therefore, she is by design wonderfully intricate. She is complex. She is deep in her personhood. And she is important to God. And she, like all of us, is a child of her time. She's a person born in a context. And and she's living in quite another context. If your Bible's open, she is not my slave. Chapter 14, verse 4. And I am not her master. She does not stand before me for me to critique her. No, verse 4, she stands before Christ and the Lord is able to make her stand. And she's not some kind of like religious robot, verse 5 of chapter 14. But she's a living, thinking, changing, changing, perfect in God's sight, assured co-heir of Christ. And she is growing as a person in Christ, made in God's image. So there's nothing stagnant about her, which means there's nothing to be stagnant about our relationship. And so there are fixed, objective truths from God's word that tell me about her and who she is in Christ. We just walked through a number of them. And therefore, if I'm going to love her well, which is the context here, if I'm going to love her in a way, chapter 14, verse 19, do you see it here, there? That builds her up as the Bible teaches me to. And again, this is not just for marital relationships. This is all relationships, weak, strong, neighbor, believer, unbeliever. There are some things, and here's the critique. There are some things about me that will always need to change. Again, there are some things about me that will always need to change. If she's changing and growing, then by golly, there's some things about me that will always need to change. Indeed, Romans 14 and 15 tell me that there are things about me in light of who she is at this exact moment that may need to change 
and then may need to change again in light of other exact moments that we don't know about that are coming because of who she is and who by God's grace she is becoming. And I hope, I hope you're hearing me. It means a lot of things, but one of the things is, okay, there are objective truths that I hold on to in our marriage. There's things about our marriage that will never change. But it also means, again, to your Bible, verse 1, chapter 14, there are some disputable, debatable matters that I can freely let go of as her husband in marriage. And therefore, and listen carefully, there are more liberal ways for me to give and show my love for her in order to accept her and to bring, chapter 15, verse 7, that's the conclusion of all this, in order to bring praise to God, which is what I was made for. It's what every Christian was made for. And there are days, wish there were more when I get that right. And there are days, wish there were less when I get that wrong. And loved ones, that is the same truth in every relationship that we know. Whether it be marital, friends, children, people who are just beginning to know. And in our relationship with each other, with the weak and the strong in Christ, with others outside of Christ, chapter 15, verse 2, by dent of principle, that is what Paul is saying here. So I want to ask you a question. When you think of holiness, when you think of being good and being holy and, and being loving, do you think of it like the line that I just went down? Or do you think of holiness and loving more of like, you know, you, you, something you're doing or not doing or of some kind of understood religious thing? You know, you need to do more of this and, and so don't touch that and don't go there and do more Y, but do a little less X. As Paul speaks of here with this confrontation, if you would, between the weak and the strong. So obviously there's some issue in the Roman church, different taste. And the strong ones, I mean, you, you should have caught that in the reading. The strong are behaving like bullies to the weak. But here Paul is telling us holiness or doing the right thing is self-giving. And therefore it is unifying. It is to be a student of others. Did you just hear that? <laughs> to study people. To be a student of others, self-forgetting, adjusting for others, and therefore attractive and, and, and encouraging as true holiness should be. Now, think with me. If you know people who are genuinely joyful and holy and loving and self-giving, you think, well, those are good people to be with. You can rely on them. About four weeks ago, I wrote a text to someone here, and I said, you're one of those people. You're one of those people that I know that I can go to and I'm like, I can go to him. I can go to him and he will help me. Sustaining, safe, life-giving. They are part of communities that are wise and cheerful and helpful. The sort of people other people like to have as neighbors. And it's a far cry from the kind of person who probably was in the Roman church at this time, who loved to turn to church and, 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 and conversations in the church and kind of like a, a debating chamber. Still less of turning the church and Christian relationships into kind of like America's got talent. You know, where the weak Christian, the different Christian is put on the dock to be cross-examined, to be judged, charged, sentenced by the strong. 
The kind of Christian behavior Paul is moving in the direction that he's moving the church is not the sort of Christian life or the Christian person that sucks the life out of everyone. And they're not always having those judgmental, non-gospel, secondary issue confrontations with you about, you know, how you are not enough of whatever. I mean, some of us grew up that way. That was Christian, you know, iron, iron. Right? By the way, iron, two metals that are exactly the same, they can't sharpen each other. So, iron has to be different. You can still call it iron, but it's different. So we've all had those, you know, do more whatever talks. I have people talk to me about that. And not I accept you, chapter 14, verse 3, as God accepts you because, you know, apparently these people have a bit more intimate knowledge of you than God does. And so this kind of person, chapter 15, verse 7, is not bringing praise to God. You can guarantee they're bringing praise to themselves. Listen to Luther commentary here on this section. There is no sin to which Christians, especially keen Christians, are more prone than that of criticizing others. When we pass swift, uninformed, unloving, and ungenerous judgment, surely we have forgotten, listen carefully, surely we have forgotten that if we speak evil of them, we speak evil of the Lord whose name they bear. Now, You know, we get bothered when people speak evil of us. We should be more bothered when they speak evil of us because they're speaking evil of our Savior and our King and our friend. It's always safe to think that way. The kingdom of God, do you see it there? Chapter 14, verse 7. And by the way, that's the only time Paul uses that phrase in all of Romans The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, right? So it means the kingdom of God is not a matter of disputable, debatable, secondary matters, which might cause the untaught or the unreasonable to to, to make part of their kingdom, but it's not part of God's kingdom. Okay, what is part of God's kingdom? Verse 17, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Everything there on that list is beautiful and it is desirable. Byproducts of the kingdom life. So that in Christ's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, he builds into a Christian a distinctive life-shaping force. Chapter 14, verse 4, in relation to secondary issues, weak, strong, do not judge. Verse 10, do not look down on others. Verse 13, don't pass judgment on others, but rather, chapter 15, verse 2, build up each other. Indeed, we fashion our life for the good of others. That's That's where Jesus went. That's where the Spirit goes all the time. So in other words, it distinctively shapes in the body of Christ a unifying way of existence, the way in which we live towards others and therefore for others, especially when it comes to secondary issues. And so what I have before us or what we have before us, I want to strongly suggest is timely both in our context as a church and and the context of the church at large in the West. I did a lot of reading to get ready for this. There are so many good people, far better than me, 
who have commented on the fact that the church in the Western world is going through some crazy times of, of fragmentation, division, breakups. And some have said that the fragmentation, the breakups are due to just, you know, essentially political allegiances. So this church has this allegiance and that church has that allegiance or people in the church has certain political allegiance. And so politics is like meat and drink for them. And everything in life is seen through that lens. Others said, you know, in light of COVID and vaccination and masking differences, that that brought to light something that was already there. Or the fact that the church, you know, generally speaking, we're just so out of touch with society. We, we, we are like, you know, lots of holy huddles. And don't go there because if you get dirty over there, don't go there because you'll get dirty. And don't watch that because you'll get dirty. Others say, you know, we're, we're so blind to our cultural defects, right? And so we just see life just through our framework. That's it. It's a self-guided life that we see for ourselves. So, so no sympathetic understanding towards other people's plight. Now, when I was growing up, it was, it was more, it was like worship wars. So what kind of music? And, and school wars. Where are you going to go to school? And social or cultural wars. In time wars. Even as I think about it, this is me. I grew up and I grew older in that framework. And the clear call was, you know, hold the line. Hold the line. Stand up for Jesus. Hold the line. But, but as I look back at it now, my question would be, okay, which Jesus are you talking about? Are, are, are you talking about a socially constructed Jesus of our religious flesh or the Jesus of the Bible? If, if the, the, the former was true, then that line that young Joe was told to hold wasn't a gospel line. It was a disputable, debatable, secondary issue line. Now, I always tell you to read history, and the reason why I tell you to read history, because that's not new to the church. It's not just in this generation. Every generation has, has faced something like that. And the funny thing, this is the funny thing, that right now, not so many of our disagreements are on the basics of the faith, but more the application of our faith in our lives. So think about it like this, how holy is holy? Or how do you live in the culture that's, you know, being overly emphasized to the point where morality and politics or a certain, you know, hand-picked social issues are more on the mind of the Christian than gospel, than forgiveness, than peace and grace and love and sacrifice and Jesus Christ and Him crucified, risen, ascended, returning. The subtitle of the talk is The Center it's got to hold. And when you do the latter, the center will not hold. It's ignored. And so the lens to which we're told to look, look through, look through all the issues of life, they're not the divinity of Christ. That's part of the center. The humanity of Christ, the virgin birth, the forgiveness of sins, justification, redemption, substitution, glorification, gospel truth, objective truths. That's how Paul, that's how the Bible teaches us to look at life. So, so this is one of the essays that I read this week. This is D.A. Carson. It's an essay called Prophetic from the Center. Listen to what he says. 
Common is the tendency to simply assume the gospel, whatever that is, while devoting creative energy and passion to other issues, marriage, happiness, prosperity, evangelism, the poor, wrestling with Islam, wrestling with the pressures of secularization, bioethics, danger on the left, danger on the right. The list is endless. This overlooks the fact that our hearers inevitably are drawn towards that about which we are most passionate. Every teacher knows that. My students are unlikely to learn all that I teach them. They are most likely to learn that about which I am most excited. If the gospel is merely assumed, while relatively secondary issues ignite our passions, we will train a new generation to downplay the gospel and focus zeal on the secondary issues. It's easy to sound prophetic from the margins. I mean, this is, and they'll sell a lot of books too. What is urgently needed is to be prophetic from the center. What is to be feared in the famous words of W.B. Yeats is that the center does not hold. Moreover, if in fact we focus on the gospel, we shall soon see that this gospel, rightly understood, directs us how to think about and what to do about a substantial array of other issues. These issues, if they're analyzed on their own, as important as they are, remain relatively peripheral. Ironically, if the gospel itself is deeply pondered and remains at the center of our thinking and living, it powerfully addresses and wrestles with all these other issues. I hope you were able to grasp at least some of that. Loved ones, without a clear, a clear understanding of what Jesus Christ has accomplished by his suffering and death of the cross, then, then, then the unity and the behavior of the early church would just be baffling. I mean, just think with me as I just do this brief tour through history. Centuries of cultural hostility between Gentiles and Jews, between Jews and Samaritans, and between different Gentile social classes. What they ate, what they drank, special days. Just a few of the examples in chapter 14 were the old ways that brought division. So if you would, they were the mask or no mask, you know, vaccine, no vaccine, Biden or Trump type of issues of our day. And on top of that, the ancient world had clearly established determined social roles for different categories of people. All right? So there were, there were certain roles for women, don't cross. There were certain roles for slaves, don't cross. There were certain roles for children, don't cross. And when the early church came together, it blew away all those lines. So how are we to live together, unified while being, you know, obviously different, I hope different, This is a major point, the second point. Paul talks about having the mind of Christ, right? Chapter 14, chapter 15, this is part of the mind of Christ. The little thing that I took you down with my wife, that is part of the mind of Christ. Objective truth, cross-centered truth helps me to understand my role. And that naturally leads to a unifying, visible church. So, for example, in chapter 15, the insults of those you have insult have fallen on me. (laughs) 
Don't you want to thank the Lord Jesus Christ for that? If you've ever been insulted, do you want to thank him for that? That he takes that? He takes that when it comes to us, he takes that? There's a, there's a commentator, Doug Moev, and he writes in Romans 15 about verse uh, 1 where it says, the strong should bear with the failings of the weak. This is what he says. Do you realize in the Greek this verse literally says, we who are strong should bear the weak? What, what, what can that mean? Paul is not urging the strong simply to bear with or to put up with the weak. This is calling us to sympathetically enter deeply into the attitudes of the weak. Find out the whys of their thought. Why do they think that way? And therein refraining from criticizing and judging and isolating them. Do what love requires. Now again, think with me about the early church. On the day of Pentecost, did you just have one culture? You had just about every civilized nation represented at Pentecost. A rich cultural mixture. The church at Antioch, in just 20 years, the, Antioch was essentially like New York City. And, and, and in the Bible, do you ever read any kind of fussing or any kind of hang-up about the color of people's skin? I mean, have you ever thought about that? The skin color thing is something new, at least in historical terms. It's a Western thing, pretty much. Skin color was never a distinction in the New Testament or the, or the early church. So the church had places in Antioch and Corinth and Ephesus and Rome, multicultural cities. The whole churches were multicultural. And Paul, it was constantly teaching the Christians from all those different places and all those different races how to get along, how to live with each other. It's, it's almost like this. If Paul, Paul would say, if you find yourself being surrounded only by people who look and sound and exactly like you, that could be an accent of geography, but it's very unusual for the Christian community. At least it should be. Because the Bible takes us into a much different direction. Final point. Big picture. Chapter 15 there. Major point. If we're going to think this way, we have to have the mind of Christ. Gospel truth. Now, now clearly as you hear this, the big lesson here is that God welcomes every Christian weak and strong. And he accepts us all in Christ. And so if God does that, then we must as well. That's, that is the Christian status. He makes the call. That is wonderful. The, the very meaning of being a Christian is that we stand justified in faith. Righteous, accepted by God. He does it. That we are righteous in God's sight by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Jesus Christ alone. So what, what is that? We're simultaneously sinful and we are, are, are in God's sight righteous. Perfect in his sight. So that means we are, and since we are the most deeply loved people on the planet, by way of God's grace, the result of that should be that we, we are the most dearly loving people on the planet. Again, because we are the most deeply loved and dearly loved people on the planet, then we ought to be the most dearly loving people of others on the planet. 
And so that conduct and some of, some of the thinking that, you know, rather irritates you will just say about me. <laughs> that has not gotten in the way of God accepting me. So don't tell me you're going to act holier than God. That we are not going to accept someone that God has accepted. Would you, would you dare reject someone who God accepts? That Jesus Christ shed his blood for. That Jesus Christ daily intercedes for. That Jesus Christ will return for. You see, that's what I mean by holding the center. The only way you're going to come up with that is not because the person's behavior is going to change. It may not change. What's going to change in you is you see everything through that gospel lens. So the best way to determine what our attitude towards other people should be is to determine what God's attitude towards them already is. Again, the best way to determine how our, our, our attitude towards other people should be should be to determine what God's attitude is to them. Do you want to find out? Well, look at your Bible. Verse 3, God accepts them. Verse 4, he makes them stand. Verse 8, in life or in death, they belong to him. Verse 9, verse 15, Christ died for them. Verse 7, chapter 15, accept them. And you see, that's why the title of the sermon is, yeah, but Jesus died for me too. Because when you're not getting those things and you are being condemned, Jesus died for me is the great silencer. Now, do you believe that? You know, do you believe that, oh, are we going to do this? We're going to get a you know, big poster board. We're going to pin up a picture of the weak, and we're going to pin up a picture of the strong, and we're going to list all the attributes in the, of the super Christians, and we're going to list all the bad behavior of the bad Christians, and we're going to make like power charts, you know, like they do in Marvel Comics, which I actually love. You know, you, but you do that with superheroes. You don't do that with people. Well, well, they're better than me. Well, they are. I'm better than them. Well, because I'm better than them, you know, I just have this great liberty to go tell them. Yeah, but Jesus died for me too. You walk into a room and that statement means nothing. Then I can promise you the center is not holding. The center, the gospel isn't holding. Let's end with two quotes. One from Luther. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, or maybe we could say when the strong come to you and say, what are you doing? Luther, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. See, this is Luther. The whole, the center's holding. The center's holding. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. That's Luther. And because we, we just always seem to live, at least in our lifetime, a power-hungry culture that sometimes seeps itself into the church, this is a, the poem, Edward Shalito, Jesus of the Scars. He was a World War I vet. And the last line, he says, the other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. Isn't that, that the insults of those you've insulted have fallen on me. But to our wounds, only God's wound can speak. 
And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. The symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross. And not scales. Do you know what I mean? Everything's equal at the foot of the cross. And there's no reason why that should ever change. Not even because some parts of our behavior are exceptional compared to others. That would be a mockery of what Jesus Christ accomplished by his suffering and death on the cross. Let the center hold. Let the center hold. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful that your word is so clear that our best will never be enough. (laughs) So our prayer is really simple. It's right from your word, God. May you, the God who gives endurance and encouragement, give us a spirit of unity among ourselves as we follow Christ Jesus. So that with one heart and one mouth, we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please, Father, bless your church today. Give everybody lots of rest, lots of peace, lots of righteousness, and lots of joy. All the things that make your kingdom the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by the sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.